Thank you, Lord, for this gorgeous day. Thank you that we can be here in what uh, starts as a gymnasium and is transformed into the house of the Lord. We're grateful to be here. Uh, we're thankful that we have access to your holy word, and we pray that we would make uh, effective, efficient, quality use of our access to that, um, particularly in this, uh, this morning as we talk about the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, I could have given you this half of the outline, but I just, it's against my nature to do so. You figured that out by now. Um, so I put this, but I still gave you the second half. So we're not looking, you should have gotten a handout. We're not looking at that yet. So we'll get, we'll get to that. Um, begin with as far as the actual, um, some of the, the background to the book of Acts. It's going to overlap with what uh, Pastor Nick talked about last week because the author of Acts is Luke, same, same, as, uh, uh, same as the author of the Gospel of Luke. And um, so I'll fill it, you know, let's see if we can fill in the blanks here a little bit, see if you listen to him, all right? So the first is Luke is referred to as the beloved Doctor is acceptable. It says physician. Good. Um, I don't know if Nick mentioned this verse, but here's another reference. So this, this one is uh, just if you know it. He's also referred to, because I think this is helpful for remembering the background. Um, he's also referred to as having, as Paul's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's too vague. I, I do this to myself sometimes. It makes perfect sense when I write it up there and then. And then it, he's Paul's fellow. Oh. He's also Paul's fellow worker. So that, be, that gives us some light about what it is that he's writing and who's helping to give him. Uh, you know, it does say that he does his own, uh, essentially Luke conducts his own investigation to be able to write the Gospel of Luke and then subsequently to write the book of Acts. Um, but he's clearly very tight with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Nick brought this up last week as well, that the Gospel of Luke was likely offered AD 50s to the early AD uh, uh, 60s. And I would say as it relates specifically to Acts, it is most likely going to be the, that early 60s. And the reason, one of the reasons we know is because um, Paul was released from uh, house arrest in AD 62. So, it, it, and Acts records his release. Therefore, at least the ending of the book could not have been prior to his release because it records his release. So uh, we know then that it's, it's probably right there about the time that he's released. Um, all right, Nick definitely hit on this. Who is the, the individual person that the Gospel of Luke and then subsequently the Book of Acts is written to? Theophilus. There we go. Okay, Theophilus. All right, very good. And then, of course, it, it's actually uh, certainly intended to, to go on to the remaining, uh, the remainder of the church. Of course, Theophilus was a Roman official of some sort. 
possibly a recently converted Christian. So, as far as the purpose, you know, we look at the fact that the Gospel of Luke provided a, an historical account of Jesus' life. But then in the subsequent book, the book of Acts, we have an historical account of the early church. That is its uh, uh, primary. In fact, uh, the quote here from Robert Kara, Kara, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name, writes, the primary purpose of Acts is to confirm Theophilus and others in the Christian faith by presenting a historical account of the triune God's special providence over the early church. So anytime you're going to the book of Acts, so remember the whole purpose that we're even doing this study of hitting the different books is not to just, you know, as, as the history saying goes, just talk about dates and dead people. We want to try to wrap our head around concepts so that you become more familiar with your scriptures so that as soon as somebody says, hey, turn to the book of Acts, one thing then you want to have in there is immediately an indexing point where your brain goes, okay, I'm turning to the book of Acts, therefore I automatically know this is about the early church. It's just a point of reference that your brain can automatically shift to when you go to turn to, uh, turn to Acts. And then um, the secondary purpose of Acts, this is another quote, is to emphasize the one unified church that by God's word expands geographically, ethnically, and redemptive historically. Close quote. So we have the the primary purpose being this historical account of this creation of the church itself, the existence of the church, and in fact, uh, specifically the first 30 years of the church, Oh, party foul. And then, and then the secondary purpose is that unity of the church and then how it, how it expands uh, throughout the world then from there. So, but there is a dividing point between the two books, that being between the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the, uh, the, the book of Acts. So let's do this. No, not Wayne. We're not even starting there. I'll, uh, I didn't even write it up there. So, Mark, you're going to start first. Go to Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And so, here, I'll go ahead and tell you ahead that the dividing events, then, are the ascension in the first episode. So you, you see that we're going to the very end of Mark, and we're going to see the ascension of Christ And then in the beginning of Acts, we have the ascension and then the giving of the Holy Spirit. So, um, Mark, go ahead and read Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Okay, thank you. So... Then, so now we've got our, um, our thinking caps on. We go, okay, Luke, historical account of Jesus that concludes with his ascension. So that historical account, it goes all the way through uh, his, uh, to uh, his resurrection and his ascension. And then what you get at the very beginning of Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. And again, I didn't write that up there, so I'll just read it to you. So now we have the beginning of this of this 
follow-up book, the sequel, where it begins, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. See, he's describing what he wrote in the first book, that being the Gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Then verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we see that, that um, Luke has authored in here a little scene. You know, he's t- he, there's a hole punched in each of the two, and there's a little, uh, I don't know what you call those, little those little rings that snap together that keep your stuff together. So basically he's, he's put that here in verses 1 through 3 of Acts to show, hey, that these go together and that this is the subsequent book to the Gospel of Luke. And then what we have proceeding from here is, uh, as you go down in Acts chapter 1, you have, his, again, his ascension. So again, we have this overlap and that it immediately rolls into the Holy Spirit. So you have the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke with the historical account of Jesus and his ascension. Then you have, in the beginning of Acts, his ascension and then the entrance of the Holy Spirit and its involvement in the church. Um, All right. So, as far as outlines, this stuff is absolutely fascinating to me. I will tell you this, when I first, um, I was first exposed uh, outlines the Bible, so not specifically just Acts, but um, structure and the way that you can divide things uh, in the Bible and kind of see where they um, patterns in the Bible. And, uh, I'm not talking about mysterious things. We're not treasure or something where you have these big super secrets. I'm just saying you see these these patterns that occur in Scripture and you see the intentionality that takes place. You know, we talk about chiasms and different ways that that, uh, Hebrew literature works and things like that. And at the beginning of of reading materials and where people pointed these things out, I was under the false assumption when I was first exposed to those that like, oh, this this is the way that it is divided and this is the way that it rolls out and that's the only way that it could be, like somebody's figured this out. And um, the more that I study and the more I'm exposed to these things, it, it, you start to see how there is, it's not that two-dimensional. It is layers upon layers of, I don't want to say complexity, but, but of details, but that yet work seamlessly together and that you can look at them and see different patterns in different ways if you turn it a different direction, and yet it never contradicts the other ways that you can divide it up. Um, Now, don't get me wrong, just to make sure that I'm perfectly clear, um, we see that all of God's redemptive history rolls out primarily in covenants, and, um, and that's how you know, from Genesis all the way through to its fulfillment and revelation of the fulfillment of the new covenant and everything. But, but yet, when you look at how history plays out in the Bible and how, in a literary sense, how it gets divided so that it helps you to understand and to see how does this book, how can I understand this book better, it is so neat to see the different ways that it can be kind of categorized. And um, so, 
these are three ways that we're not even going to look at, like we're not going to spend time looking at, but these are three other ways that people have divided up um, and made outlines out of the book of Acts that I think are pretty neat. And you can do that, and if it's helpful for you to divide it up that way, then that, that works as well. They're not wrong. That it, uh, It's just a different way to, to do it. But so, for instance, the first way is to go, okay, well, when is... Uh, Peter involved. He's involved in chapters 1 through 12, and then Paul is involved in his enter. I mean, he's entered into the story earlier, but as far as being a focal point, you have Peter in chapters 1 through 12, and Paul in 13 through, I don't know, the end, what, tw- how many chapters are in? Through the end. So, the point being is that you can, you can look at it in the, this is a nice simplistic way, to, to look at the book of Acts and go, okay, well, if Peter is in view, you're in your first, first half, and then it makes this transition to Paul. The, uh, another way that you can do it is there are actually seven distinct Holy Spirit events that somehow involve the Holy Spirit. So, of course, the first major event being Pentecost, and then there are subsequent um, events in which the Holy Spirit is clearly in view during the historical account of the growth of the church, because we've already seen that uh, one of the, you know that dividing line between the historical account of Jesus's life in the Gospel of Luke and the historical account of the of the early church is this um, introduction in a significant way of the Holy Spirit into the believer's life and into the church itself. And so you could go through and do a study. I mean, these are studies that that you could do standalone studies where um, you look at the seven distinct events that take place where the Holy Spirit is involved in some special way. And then this one is really neat as well. Here's another way to divide up the book of Acts, which is what is referred to as six summary statements. So I'll give you an example of a uh, couple of these summary statements. So one of them says, um, after the account, it says, but the word of God increased. So it's kind of this, uh, after whatever it is happened, there seems to be a little bit of a summary there, but the word of God increased, and then another set of events happened, and then it ends with, so the churches were strengthened in the faith. Then another set of events happens, and then towards the end of that, it says, so the word of the Lord continue to increase. And so you see a couple of things. One is that, that summarizing um, perspective, like, okay, I've said all this, and the result is, and you see two things mentioned in each of these summary statements in some way, and it has to do with the word of God and the church. So the word is increasing, the church is growing. Here's the next phase. Such and such happens, and the result of all of these things happening is that the word increases, the church expands. Okay, next series of events happens. You know, Peter or Paul is going about doing their thing, and then it summarizes the word of God increases and the church is expanding. And so, again, you're looking and you're going, okay, all of that fits within that greater perspective of the creation of the church and God's redemptive plan in history and saying, okay, um, uh, it's, it's the church, that it's God's people that make up the church in that way. So very helpful ways to look at how to outline or to kind of divide up the book of Acts. However... There is one more, and now you can look at your handout. There is one more that we're going to look at, 
that I, um, I'm a little bit partial to, and the, the primary book that we're kind of um, pulling a lot of our information out of is uh, a Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament by Michael Kruger, and this is one that um, the author of this section of the book also um, kind of emphasizes. I like it. I, I think part of it is I'm partial to it. It's a geographic outline, and I think I'm partial to it as well because when I preached through the book of Mark, remember that that's the way that we looked at the book of Mark is it was a geographic outline. It was Jesus's Galilean ministry, then he was on the way to Jerusalem, and then the last section was he was in Jerusalem. So it was all this geographic thing, and as they changed locations, it actually shifted the narrative. And that's what happens in the, in the way of looking at this particular outline of the book of Acts as well. So the book of Acts then begins in Jerusalem. So... Uh, the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, so that's where the church starts. And I, you have the handout, so I'll, um, you know, chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 7. And so what I did is I just chose a few bullet points to show what was going on at that location. So again, this is looking at it, tying it to geography. So the geography starts in Jerusalem, and then... It's essentially communicating, Jesus communicates at the beginning, I want you to stay here. So see, that's geographically, a geographical reference. I want you to stay here physically in Jerusalem because you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, Wayne, I believe you're my first reader. Go ahead. Verse 4. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, to, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay. Which he said. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You, you heard from me. Okay. You want me to yep. You go. Okay. You heard from me, for John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There we go. So here we have Jesus. They're asking a question, and Jesus is answering it, but uh, there's a, it's a little bit vague, but part of it is because they're asking you know, the wrong question. In their minds, they're thinking, are you going to reestablish the nation of Israel? Are we going to have a king on the throne? Is David 2.0 going to be there and rule? And are we going to be um, in charge of all the surrounding nations and, and everything? And Jesus is saying, no, this is what you're going to do. Just listen to me here. You know, you're going to hold still and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then it's going to be your job to go out into the world. And of course, they don't at this time have a good grasp of what it is that that means. And I made the note there, too, that what's interesting about those verses that Wayne just read is that's not a command. He's not saying go into the world, even though that's what we read at the end of uh, Matthew um, in the Great Commission, but it's a prediction. He's saying this is, this is the way things are going to be. And then it goes on in Jerusalem. In chapter 1, we see a preparation for this creation, this establishment of the church by reconstituting the twelve. And that's where, uh, because of Judas's betrayal, he played the part that he was supposed to play. 
of betrayer, and he was dead and gone, and they replaced him with Matthias, and, uh, and just a reminder that the importance of doing that was that God, in, in his economy and the way that he's um, playing out um, history, is that there is something important about the 12. So he had the 12 tribes, he had the 12 apostles, and then one, when one of them, of course, betrayed, it was important to reinstitute, reconstitute that, those 12 apostles. Now, uh, you know, you can get real hung up on, well, wait a minute, but Paul was also called an apostle, but that's all, and so that's a 13th, and, uh, but that's already actually looking at it the wrong way. It isn't which, which names are the 12. The point is that God, in the creation of his church and the establishment of the prophets and the apostles being the foundation of the church, he wanted there to be 12, and then we see that reflected then in Revelation. So in Revelation, it doesn't get hung up on the names either of who those 12 apostles are, and it's really not that important. What is clearly important is that as it comes to the creation of the church, there has to be 12, and so God had them choose, or he chose, Matthias, to uh, bring together the 12, and Paul comes along later and serves the role of apostle, but we don't need to worry about okay, but who's in, who's out? That's, you know, that's the kind of question that James and John or, and James and John and their mom were asking and Jesus is like, hey, 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 no, no, no. That's not for me to decide. We're not, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not talking about that. So, uh, so that's what's taking place in Jerusalem. Chapter two, of course, we have the events of Pentecost. The apostles then receive the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Holy Spirit now becomes an actual physical and time hist- uh, uh, integral part of the expansion of the church, and who has 238? Is that you, Caleb? I don't know. Whoever has chapter 2, verse 38. No? All right, Caleb, I gave you the, I gave you a different one. Okay. You got 230? No, I, I didn't write it up there, so it's my, I got different highlights then. Go ahead and hit it, buddy. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Repent and be baptized. So now, you see, it, um, think about, in Mark, at least, um, when John the Baptist when John the Baptist was baptizing and how he said, Hey, I baptize you with water, but one... Um, greater than me comes and he's going to baptize you know with fire and so now we have see that transition uh, and that chain in place um, where they're receiving the Holy Spirit the language has actually changed now it's not just repent and believe it's repent um, and believe because you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and we see now that all of this makes this part of the last days so uh, part of chapter 2 here, I'm going to verse 17. I'll, actually, I'll back up to verse 16, but this is what the, what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he goes on, this is Peter's uh, sermon, he goes on to quote Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men see dreams, and it goes on from there. So the point is, is that this whole transition is taking place. The creation of the church involves the last days. Things, it, everything has changed. All of history has changed. Uh, 
redemptive historically, which of course then means all other forms of history have now changed as well because we've moved into these last days in the creation of God's church and it has changed um, the nature of how we look at who God's people are. Now, okay, Caleb, hopefully, did you return back to your original? So, turn there, because, okay, so now we're moving on to the second, so that all those things take place in Jerusalem. Now we have the fact that the church is uh, now moved and expanded. Remember, uh, hopefully you remember because the sermon was not that long ago, the scattering of the church in chapter 8. That was when Saul begins to ravage the church, and now it forces, uh, it forces all of those Hellenic, uh, Hellenist Christians west to the Mediterranean. We see them go on north to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. So again, keeping that geographic sense of things that we're in a new phase because the church is being expanded to those areas. And then we had uh, the a discussion um, last Sunday after the service during our postscript about the delayed delivery of the Holy Spirit. And it was specifically because there's a major issue of are we sure the Jews are basically going, okay, even if we, the Jewish Christians, even if we say, okay, we absolutely believe in Christ and what he's done, are we sure those people are included? Like, is that real? Samaritans, you know, not to mention Gentiles. And so we have these verses that show the inclusion of these folks because of the, uh, the delivery of the Holy Spirit. And um, so, Caleb, go ahead and read 8, 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had, all, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's a delayed delivery of this Holy Spirit because... Um, there is a clear demonstration to everyone that, that these guys, Peter and Paul, the heavy hitters, are showing up there to demonstrate that these folks are also included in the church. And they're being given the Holy Spirit in a way that everybody can see. And that name, primarily, that being in the form of being able, of speaking in tongues at that time. And I think it brings greater clarity when we see two other spots where we see the exact same thing happening, but with a little more... Um, uh, with a few more details added. So chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. Go ahead, Timmy. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Okay, so see how we have a little bit more information now. It is the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit did fall on them. It has a connection to speaking in tongues. And so all of this is being articulated, I think, to make it clear to both the people that are there and then, of course, subsequently to the readers of the book of Acts to know that um, the Gentiles are included. And we have one more verse that backs that up. Go ahead, Jamie. The setting here is Corinth. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay, so more of the same, and then also in this church expanding to Judea, uh, Samaria, and Antioch, we have in, the, in these chapters um, Peter and Cornelius' exchange. Remember, this is the whole Peter having the vision, fell into a deep sleep, had the vision of the food, the, 
uh, coming down and, you know, Lord, I would never touch that kind of food. That's, you know, that's beneath me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't violate your law in that way. And of course, clearly God makes it, um, or God makes it clear that the Gentiles are going to be included. What was once called unclean, God gets, has the authority to then call those things clean. And so, um, that takes place in this section, and then also then it kind of closes uh, in chapter 11, or it gets closer there to, to closing in that particular section, where Jesus then returns to Jerusalem and reports back all these things that have happened. So again, there's additional testimony to say, hey, everything has changed. This new church is going to include Samaritans. It's going to include Gentiles. It's no longer just the ethnic, ethnic Jews. Okay, so... Moving through our geography, we went from Jerusalem, it expanded out to Judea, Samaria, and Antioch. Now it transitions to Paul, and we have his first missionary journey. And I thought this was an interesting fact, I didn't know until I read it there. But in chapter 13 it shifts to Paul, and then Paul is included in every pericope. So a pericope is just a kind of a, a, a division of scripture that you know, it's, it's a passage that's all kind of together. So basically in every episode, every, you know, shortened account within Acts from that point on, with the exception of those four verses you see there, Paul is in every one of them. So clearly the focus shifts to Paul, and we have um, in this section then his first missionary journey that goes to the uh, northeast Mediterranean everywhere, uh, area rather. He's with Paul and Barnabas, and they are commissioned to go to Antioch. Who's got my 13, 1 to 3? Gerald. I'll be Gerald. Okay, you be Gerald. Now there were in the church Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. So Paul and Barnabas are being actually commissioned, and then it ends, this section ends here, with Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch after the commission is fulfilled. So I'm trying to point out the verses that make it clear they started in Antioch and ended in Antioch, and that... Then they, passed, <clears throat> then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Okay, so see, they returned back to Antioch. So the reason um, choosing those verses, again, it's a geographical thing, you're just following the church and what's taking place. Uh, that then moves to the fourth part, the Jerusalem Council, and that's only, what, 35, 36 verses. And so now we have at the Jerusalem Council, so everything that Peter experienced and this whole idea of the, the church, including people that were not Jews, it was still blowing their minds, people were really, really struggling with this, and so all of these things are happening. The, get, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is clearly being given to the Samaritans and to, uh, to the Gentiles. The church is expanding. 
but there, it's still a big enough issue that Paul has to return back to the uh, Jerusalem council. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and then there's also a quote, uh, James ends up quoting the prophet Amos, where they're all testifying to the reality of what God is doing among the Gentiles. They have to hear it in person. They're hashing this out. This is like a court, you know. Can this possibly be true? And it seems, when you read it, it seems like it's leaning towards, there's no way, it just can't be. We can't, the Lord wouldn't do this. They, they can't possibly be included. Or if they are included, they certainly have to fulfill these Jewish laws that we all, these ceremonial laws that we had to do. Surely they have to do that too before we can kind of let them in. And then eventually um, in this section here, all of that gets blown up when Peter says, look, let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you what I've done. And Paul does the same thing. And then we also have the quote that uh, James gives um, from the prophet Amos. I lost my spot here. And then Paul and Barnabas uh, return after that. Then again, this is the geographical connection. Paul and Barnabas then, once the council's done, return to Antioch and share the results of what happened with the council. So, Jane. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Okay, so they're returning to Antioch, delivering the letter, meaning, hey, here are the findings from the council after we met, and they're all rejoicing. Praise God, because he's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying, hey, look what the, look what the ruling is. We're all in agreement. This is what the Lord is doing. You're included. So, of course, they're all rejoicing. Now, I know this is a lot of information. I'm talking fast. There's a lot of detail here. But we're just trying to help sort this out and see how things roll out in a geographic sense. Okay, so then from Antioch, Paul begins his second missionary journey. And this is where in this second missionary journey that actually Paul and Barnabas separate. Remember, they have their um, scuffle over... John Mark, who had turned away originally, and so, uh, and who remembers, because we talked about it, what's probably an additional factor in Barnabas's loyalty? Cousin, cousin, yeah. He's cousins with John Mark. And so, um, there's an additional family, I would assume, a, a family loyalty there, and Barnabas sides with, uh, with John Mark, and so they separate. And of course, in God's providence, he uses this, um, if you want to say unfortunate or difficult situation to his glory, and you end up now with two um, missionary evangelistic um, missions, although Paul is clearly the, uh, the primary and God is blessing his, and, and that's the uh, details of the accounts that we have is, is really with what Paul is doing. And so on Paul's second journey then, he's taking on intermittent companions. He doesn't have Barnabas now, so we see people, some different folks coming and going as he as he continues on that journey, he heads farther west into Asia. And then also during this time, he has the Areopagus address where he evangelizes to the, uh, to the Gentiles. And so this is, this is fascinating, this kind of thing. So now you know that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles don't have the historical background. They, didn't, they weren't raised with the same... Hebrew education that the Jews were. So when, G, when, when you read the account of Paul 
preaching, teaching at the Areopagus, what he doesn't do is make connections back to Jewish history. You know, kind of a, you heard that it was said kind of thing, because they hadn't heard that it was said. That's not the education that they grew up in a Greek world. They didn't grow up in a Jewish world. They didn't go to uh, um, Judaism elementary school or anything like that. that. That wasn't their history. So what does he do is he takes it back to creation. And so uh, that Areopagus address, that's the one where he says, you know, I see that you have an idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. And he goes on then based on the argument of creation to say this is who this God is and doesn't connect it to Jewish history. So, um, which says something to us too about when we evangelize, knowing or your audience. You know, just having a, I mean, it's good to be prepared in the sense that, hey, here's my, you know, my card that, you know, do you know where you're, where you're going to go when you die? You know, ha having some diagnostic questions and stuff, those things can be helpful. Um, even better, though, is to just be familiar with your scriptures and be able to talk to people about the truth of scriptures based on where they are, the questions that they have, and so that you can talk to people about this is who the creator is, and this is what he did by um, sending his son to become incarnate and intervene and um, having familiarity with parables and the story of Joseph and, and just having a, the, an increased familiar, familiarity with scripture allows you to speak freely about the truths of scripture and it not just being, I can beat your argument. You know, that's winning an argument is not, is not the deal. And so we see this example in Paul where he shows up and he goes, okay, they don't have this history. This is the direction I'm gonna go. Praise God. So it's a, it's a good example uh, for us as well. Okay, uh, uh, the sixth one there of the seven is uh, his third missionary journey, again to the area of the Aegean Sea. And again, he launches from Antioch. But this time, he doesn't return back to Antioch. So in the previous two, remember, he leaves Antioch, goes on his whole journey, ends in Antioch both times. And then the third one, he leaves Antioch again, but actually ends in Jerusalem. And then he stays in Jerusalem probably about two years because he's uh, been arrested. And so th that, those two years there in Jerusalem is when, um, um, is it Herod? That is basically hoping that he's going to produce some money. He wants to hear Paul, and so he keeps inviting him, but, you know, actually he's also hoping that he gets some money. And... Um, during that time, a significant event is Eutychus is raised from the dead. Anybody remember what, what happened to Eutychus? Yes, yeah. Paul was on a, Paul was on a bender, yeah. Uh, it was preaching bender, not drinking bender. Preaching. He was, he was, on, a, he was on a run, and uh, Eutychus fell asleep, <laughs> fell out of the window, fell down and broke his neck and died, and Paul raised him back from the dead. Least he could do, right? <laughs> Um, okay, so obviously a significant event. Um, the previous two journeys focused on, you know, everywhere he went, he was establishing new churches. In this third journey, there's a heavy emphasis on what takes place at the church in Ephesus, and then also returning and hitting the churches he had already started and, and strengthening those churches. I put a quote here from the same guy, Robert uh, Cara. 
Many, quote, many critical scholars view this address as the separation of the apostolic age from the post-apostolic age and establishment of Christendom. So um, there's, there's kind of a, a historical shift there from a, a focus on the apostles themselves, even within Acts. Now it's kind of a moving, moving past that. All right, and then in the last one is the uh, geographic is the Paul is Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. So remember, Paul is now during those two years he's there, and what puts an end to that is then eventually he appeals to Caesar, which ends up forcing him to be sent to Rome. And, and we see now what was read in the beginning by Wayne there. You know, Paul in Rome overlaps. So now you have basically towards the end of the book, it overlaps with the fact of what Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, that the word's going to go out to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so how we have Paul, who is marked as the apostle to the Gentiles, who finds himself starting in Jerusalem and ending in Rome, which essentially is... The cap, if you want to say the capital of Gentiles, I mean it is Gentile central. That is, that's the heart of it. And so, yet another indicator that God is fulfilling the very thing that He said, um, predict, predicted was going to happen in Acts 1 verse 8. And then the last two things I, I wanted to note was um, who's got Acts? Did I put it on there? Yeah, Glenda. Acts 26 verse verses 32, 30 to 32. Read that for me, Glenda. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, he said to one another, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa, if that's what it was, I said Herod. Um, you know, just a, a little pastoral theological note here that I just want to throw out there. We can do what Agrippa and Bernice and everything just did, all right? We can go, you know, if things would have gone just a little bit different, think of how much better it could be. And we can look at that and, and say, man, look at even historically Paul, if only he hadn't said the words, you know, I appeal to Caesar, look how he could have been set free. And wouldn't that be better if things would have been that way? But even better than Acts 26, 30 to 32, and what the world values, which is he could have been set free, think instead about the final two verses of, um, of Acts. So Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, which say, he lived this, so now this is at Rome, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So if you want to get into the turn back the clock game, you subtract that out of God's history and what takes place in Rome. So something to remember for ourselves that we don't get too wrapped up in the uh, if only game and uh, that we can also see as we kind of think about how to, to chop up and chew on the book of Acts that uh, geographically is one really helpful way to do that. So anybody have a quick comment or question? Jane. 
I had a question about Matthias. Yes. Whatever happened to him? Is he mentioned in scripture again or in history? Um, I, yeah, I can't his, recall his, anything. Historically, I can't speak to that. Uh, in the Bible, I, I don't remember him being mentioned again. I'm not going to bet the farm. But I don't think so. I don't. I yeah. Which again goes back to the fact that, you know, who the names are themselves, who those people are, isn't really the most important thing. It was clearly very, very important that 12 was reestablished, the fullness of God, and that even the, in a sense, you could, I, I look at it in a sense, you could go all the way back to Genesis 3 and say, okay, the bruising of the heel, well, you can almost look at the 12 and go, yeah, the, there was damage done, there was a bruising to the heel, we lost one, but then the crushing of the serpent's head, because he's going to reconstitute that 12th, and God is going to see his, his purposes through to the very end, to his glory. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the time that we've been given. And we are so grateful that we both live in a, uh, a country where um, we can be hooked up to um, augmented sound speakers because we're not in fear of being arrested for our faith. So we are thankful that we are able to live peaceful uh, and quiet lives. Uh, but Lord, we pray that we would not be so focused on peace and quiet that we uh, fail to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is certainly very upsetting to a lot of people. And we pray for that truth that is uh, to be preached to us here in just a couple of minutes. Pray that you would be glorified, your saints would be edified, and that you might draw um, those that have had stony hearts uh, to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen.